So in this series, we're looking at this uh, accusation against the New Testament that the, the New Testament endorses slavery. Now, it's something you might have heard before. Maybe it's something you even think. Um, and so I want to spend a few weeks just unpacking this idea, just to see if it's true or not, just interrogating the idea and, and just to see if there's any merit in, in this as an accusation. So we've spent a couple of weeks so far looking at uh, just the, the background and the history of slavery. So you know, I'd encourage you to go and, and check out those episodes just to get something of a, a sort of a setup to where we are today. But I want to start today looking at the New Testament itself. Now, again, where this accusation comes from, I think, is because uh, what we find in uh, in letters like Ephesians and Colossians, where, where Paul says to the slaves that they need to obey their masters, basically just uh, maintain the status quo, and or as the accusation would go, to endorse this institution, basically to reinforce that this is a good thing and that we just need to keep this thing going uh, even as Christians. Now, the point that I've been making throughout all of this is that it's, I, I, I think it's a cynical read. I just don't agree with that as a reading of the New Testament for reasons that I want to look at today. Um, but basically, it just doesn't take into consideration the reality of slavery. It doesn't take into consideration how embedded in slavery was in this society. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, this is what we call a slave society. Uh, there's, there's no other way to describe it. This is a world that is absolutely grounded in the practice of slavery. Slavery in the ancient world is like the internet today. If we take away the internet, effectively our society collapses. Everything in our world is dependent on the internet. And so to remove that would be to bring about the downfall of probably civilization. That's Now, that's certainly how slavery was seen in the ancient world. Now, of course, we've come now in the modern West, certainly to live without slavery and really around the world, we've come to live without slavery and we can see that it is an absolute evil and, and all of that is a fantastic uh, achievement of progress. But go back 2000 years, much before that, this progress that we've got, we found ourselves in, go back into the first century, you can't imagine a world without slavery. You can't remember a world without slavery and you don't want to think about a world without slavery. It's something that is absolutely fundamental to everything about our lives, everything about our experience, everything about our productivity is all grounded in the practice of slavery. And so it's not something that is going to be simply removed or abolished. And there's certainly no desire for that to happen from any parts of the planet. Everyone, everyone in the world is doing slavery in some capacity. And it's just a fact of life. It's just a fact of being a human is that slavery is something that we do. So just by way of recap, I want to look at a couple of the points, just to quickly um, reiterate a couple of the points that I made last week, and certainly as they pertain to what we're going to talk about today. So what we're going to look at today is what Paul says to the Ephesians and the Colossians, where he's saying to them, slaves obey your masters. So I actually want to look at those passages in some depth, but just by way of reminder, just to, again, reset the scene, particularly if you're just tuning into this series, just to give you a sense of where we've come to uh, as to what slavery was in reality for, for Paul in his time. So the, the simple reality was that everyone, certainly, and we'll talk about the Roman Empire. This is really true for all civilizations, for all people in the ancient world. There was really just nobody who wasn't doing slavery. But we'll talk about the Roman world um, that Paul was working in and, and a part of. The reality was for every person 
you were either a slave or a free, free person. There was that, those were your two main categories and they were legally bound categories. You were legally free or you were legally a slave. Now there was this in-between category, which is what we call the freedman. So the freedman was somebody who, who was a slave who's now been emancipated. But the problem is that they fall into this middle category and there were plenty of freedmen. There were a lot of people who were manumitted and there were a lot of, therefore, a lot of freedmen. So there were plenty of these people around, but they fell into this sort of ambiguous category of, uh, of people. On the one hand, they were free. They had been freed from their slavery. They were no longer in slavery. And so they couldn't be, they were no longer counted as legally a slave. So they, they were neither of those, uh, op, those sort of extremes. But the problem was, even though they were free, they were not fully free in the sense that they were tainted with slavery. Whatever they were to become, they always had the markers of slave. And very often the physical marks in that they've probably got uh, scars from where they've been flogged on multiple occasions where they've been beaten for the women, um, had been just repeatedly raped. And even the men had been repeatedly raped by their masters. They, they carried with them literally the stigma of of having been slaves. You know, when Paul says to the Galatians, I bear on my marks, uh, I bear on my body the marks of Christ, he's talking about a slave's marks. He's talking about the, the physical scars that a slave would bear. Uh, and so they they carry those with them all the time. And so there's always this, um, there's always this uh, taint about them that they had been in slavery. And so that always works against them. And they were legally restricted as well. They could never hold public office. They could never hold any political positions. They were always restricted in the sense that they could never achieve the heights of society because of this fact. It's it's a little bit like when somebody has been in jail for 20 or 30 years, they've served a very long sentence and they've, they're now released from prison. There's always that thing about them. There's always that, well, you know, you, you went to prison for a long time, maybe for something like murder even though you might be completely reformed and probably are, there's always that thing about you. If that, if that information gets out, there's always that uh, question over you, you know, the fact that you've been in this position before. And so that was the, the, the situation, that was the, uh, the, the idea around the freedmen. Now, to be sure, they could advance and actually achieve great heights in sense of gaining for themselves wealth, um, gaining for themselves influence over others, becoming the patron to, to many people. They could do that, but they were always, there was always a ceiling over them. And the reality for, for the majority of them is that they were always still bound in some way to their master. They had been released by their master, but they were still obligated back to him or to her. They, they quite literally carried the name of their former master. They were renamed after their master. So it was always obvious who they used to belong to, and now in a sense, still do belong to in some ways. So you, the point being, you always fit into a category, free or slave. Those were the two legal categories that this world understands itself to be in. That's, that's how the world divides itself up. Now, the slave themselves had no human rights. They had no legal privileges. They were not seen as fully human. Uh, we, again, in the West, we take for granted this idea of, of human rights. We take for granted that everybody has equal worth. That is a very new, in the context of history, that's a very new, very Western, very liberal idea that we just take for granted. But that was just not always the case. That wasn't the case for most of human history. You, uh, humans are created unequally. Humans are 
by their by virtue of their gender or by virtue of their status are unequal both legally and in a sense um, psychologically seen psychologically as being greater or lesser again based on gender based on ethnicity based on um, your social status any of these things will sort of categorize you at a certain level and so because a slave is the lowest of the status they're, they're not fully human they're a human body sure but they're not fully human they don't have the same human privileges and rights that a free person does and so there's no recourse for a slave a slave can't say hey i've been kept in slavery this is terrible can somebody do something well what are you talking about it's part of who we it's what we do it's it's written into our legal system that slavery is perfectly fine it's only a question of how you treat slaves or even in the sense how you treat other people's slaves is really the concern. Now, one of the probably uh, more difficult things to come to grips with is that for many slaves, their lot in life was actually better than many free people. And again, this is just a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around in, in such a prosperous, free society that we live in. And I'm talking from the Australian context. We live in the most prosperous, the most free society that humanity has ever known. We, it's just what we have is just extraordinary by comparison to everybody else in human history. And so the very idea of slavery as being a reality, let alone being better than the situation that I've got, is just it's a joke. It's it's laughable if it wasn't so offensive. 2,000 years ago, it's a different story. 2,000 years ago, it's a world where everyone's living at subsistence level poverty, apart from the top 1% who have all of the land and therefore all of the wealth. Everybody's living at absolute poverty. You, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You, you're lucky if you eat one or two meals a day on a regular basis. You, 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 you don't know if your work is going to just be gone tomorrow or whatever your source of income is just going to be gone tomorrow. There's no insurance for any sort of devastation that might occur to you. Your life is so precarious um, that the best you can hope for is just a steady steady meals, steady food, is and maybe steady shelter is about the best you can ever hope for. But even to achieve that, you've got to work seven days a week. You've just got to work with everything you've got just to get the bare minimum of survival. A slave doesn't have to worry about that. A slave doesn't have to worry about the, where the next meal is coming from or what, how they, what they're going to eat or what they're going to wear or where they're going to live. They don't worry about those things because they've got a master who takes care of that. Now, of course, yes, they're in slavery. Of course, that will, you can never take that away. And so it's always better to be free. But if your freedom is to do the same work that a slave is doing for the, effectively the same uh, outcomes, which is just basic survival, well, that's one less thing a slave has to think about. And in some cases, some slaves are living in housing situations that are just palaces and quite literal palaces by comparison to, certainly by comparison to everybody else, but just quite legitimately living in some of the most luxurious houses of the ancient world. And so that's not to say in any way that slavery was ever a good thing, only to say that the world was so bad that slavery was a better option in some cases by comparison to what everybody else had to face. So it's not just that slavery was completely... Uh, not just institutionalized, but was part of the human fabric. It was sometimes a better situation. This is just how difficult the, circ the circumstances were that we're talking about. So then slavery is embedded in the society and 
every family is going to have a slave. Slavery is part, or, or a slave is going to be a part of every family, and even the poorest families are going to have a slave. Uh, it's only the most impoverished families that can't afford a slave that don't have one. They're, they're doing all the work themselves, but if you can afford a slave, you're going to get one because you want the help. They're every task that has to be done. I mean, this is a world before appliances. This is a world where all of the washing has to be done down at the river by hand, where down to just the toilet ha is a bucket that you have to take out to the street to empty out whenever it gets full. Every piece of clothing you wear, you have to make from scratch. Um, every, just every single thing that we do, we, you, you have to do all of that process yourself. And it's just a lot of work to be done. Now, granted, you don't have as much to do, you don't have a lot as much stuff to do, and your houses are much smaller. But absolutely everything is done by you. You are responsible for all of it. And so, if you can get some help, in the same way that we want appliances for absolutely everything, you want to get some help. You want to get some domestic labor to come in and take some of the burden off. So everyone wants a slave. Everyone's going to have a slave, at least one, but even several in in a more moderate family. And so, slaves are part of the family. And they're seen as part of the family. When you think, we think about the modern nuclear family, you know, a, a husband and a wife and some children as a sort of standard model for a family. Um, we need to extend beyond that to the slaves. We need to incorporate the slaves into the household because they quite literally lived in the house. You imagine your house and there was all these extra people around. And if it's a bigger house, there's more people who are your slaves and that they're your domestic service. And so the slaves are part of the family and they're also part of the house, so much so that most uh, the larger Roman villas, uh, a part of the architectural design is that you have a slave quarters. You build into your house an area for the slaves. Now, typically, um, this area is accessed by a narrow corridor and it's somewhere towards the back of the house so that they're out of sight. You Slaves are always present, but they never noticed. And that's that's how slavery is basically really perceived in the society. We know that slaves are there. In fact, about a, world, a third of the human population are, in, are enslaved. But you don't, need, you don't want to see them. They're not meant to be there. They're, they're everywhere, they're present, and if you if you look around, you'll see them everywhere, but the idea is that they're not noticed, and especially around the house. The idea is that they blend into the household. They blend into whatever is going on uh, around the place. And so they stay out the back. We, we only want to see them when they're serving us, when they bring in out food, and then they need to disappear again. Um, and so they're only present when we need them, but for the rest of the time, they vanish. And like any good furniture, it just sort of blends into the decor. It blends into the room so that it's only there again if you if you notice it, if you if you pay attention to it. So a slave is a part of the family. They're, they're an extension of the family, but at the same time, paradoxically, they're property. Um, they're a part of your family in the same way that maybe a pet is a part of your family. You know, you, you care for them in so much as whatever benefit they provide for you, but they always remain property. And that's the status that they're always going to hold. Now, that's a really important point that I want sort of sort of put a pin into because that's what's going to lead into where we're going to go with the rest of this episode today in the sense that um, slaves are part of every single family and that includes the Christian families, right? The, the, the families that Paul 
is engaged with are families that have slaves because everybody has slaves. And it wasn't that we've got generations of time to reflect on slavery. Paul is dealing with families who've been Christians for a couple of years. Christianity hasn't been around for a very long time when Paul's writing his letters, right? It's only been maybe a decade. And so these families who are the Christian families were formerly pagan families. Every one of them came into Christianity and came out of this world or are still a part of this world where slavery is absolutely normal down to just we cannot imagine a world without it. And so they're being Christianized. And we'll come back to that. I won't sort of carry on here. We'll, We'll come back to that later on. But it's a very important point that we have to recognize that if a Christian family has a slave, it's because every single other family does. And it's because they've always had slaves. And for all of the generations coming down to that family, they've always had slaves. It's just part of of just how things are. Now, the final point that I touched on last week that I really want to unpack and it really, I guess, frames what we're going to talk about today is that it's illegal to persuade a slave to do anything that would violate their, their status or that would um, compromise their master. Anything that might depreciate their value, anything that might, um, you know, just basically damage them in any way in the eyes of their master, that is completely illegal, right? It's, it's no different to if somebody damages your car, that's illegal. And certainly if they damage it to a point where it's, it doesn't function the way that it normally, that it, prop, that it should properly, well, that's even worse. And so the same sort of property laws that we have for our own property well, a slave is property. And so property laws apply to a slave in the same way. If you damage a slave in any way, and, and most especially if you persuade a slave to try to escape, that's an absolute no-no. There, there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing. That, that is stealing, like stealing a car. You, you, you cannot do that. That is absolutely the, the breaking the law in, in the most egregious way. And so... Just that in itself is such an important thing for us to keep in mind that when Paul is dealing with families and he's dealing with slave-owning families, there's actually a legal restriction placed on his ability to speak about them. It's not so much that he doesn't speak against slavery, it's that legally he can't speak against slavery. Now, the reality is that some people may have spoken out against slavery. There might have been a few voices in the wilderness that were decrying the practice of slavery generally within the Roman society. Now, we don't know any of those voices. We don't hear anything from those voices. And chances are the reason we don't is because they're probably crucified. They were probably executed for speaking out against slavery. It's just not something you do. And again, most people don't even think to speak against it. Not even slaves would think to speak against it because it's just, it's speaking against human nature. But if you did, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. You may even get executed. And so it's just not something you, if you, if you think about even doing it, it's just not something that you're realistically going to do because again, that's a criminal offense. All right. So with all of that said, that's what's going to bring us into what we're going to be talking about today. And the important point we have to keep in mind throughout all of this is that you can't address the slaves and you can't, you certainly can't address them so as to cause them to behave in a way that is dishonorable or in a way that is going to um, diminish their value in any way. That is just illegal to do that. Forget about the morality stuff. I mean, we just, we've got to put ourselves into a first century mindset here. You You just simply cannot do that. And so you cannot change a slave's situation by addressing the slave. 
even if you were considerate, considerate of the slave, if you acknowledged their presence, their existence, you can't change their circumstances by changing them. They, they can't just go, oh, I'm free now because of this new worldview, and so therefore I'm going to go and live out my freedom in reality. That's going to get them on a cross. They are going to be crucified precisely for that. To say to them, go and liberate yourself is to get them executed. There is no, there's no police force in the ancient world, but there are slave catchers. There are professionals whose job it is, is to go and catch runaway slaves. And because it was a common thing. And so if you want them to end up in the hands of a slave catcher, well then go ahead and say to the slaves, hey, you go and be free and go and do whatever you want. That's not going to be a good outcome for anybody, most certainly the slave. And so that's something you just simply cannot do. Even if you want to do it, even if you think about it as an option to do that, you, you just simply cannot do it. And so like any property, the only there's only one person who can change the circumstances of the property, and that's the owner. If you want to change the circumstances of the slave, you have to change the circumstances of the master. You have to change their perception of the slave in order for the slave situation to be changed because the slave cannot change it and you cannot change the slave. The only person who can do that is their master. And so what we find on very rare occasions is masters being addressed with regard to their slaves. You will never ever see slaves being addressed because again, slaves don't really exist. They're not fully human in most people's view. Certainly not to the extent where you might actually address them as equals because they're not equals. They're just simply not equals to, to you. So the only person you're going to ever address with regard to the slave then is going to be the master. And by changing the attitude of the master, you might change the circumstances of the slave. Now, again, that's only if you care about the slaves, which most people don't because they have their own slaves and they, they certainly wouldn't want slaves to have more, be, be, become more uppity because their master is very generous to them or, or any of these things. It's just not something you're considering, you're, you're considerate about doing. But there are some rare exceptions where we do see this and primarily where we see this apart from Paul is amongst the Stoic philosophers. Now to set some context then for, for who these philosophers are, um, if you were to ask anybody in the first century, if you were to point to Paul or to Jesus and say, what type of person is that? Their answer would be, well, that's a philosopher. That's somebody who is a teacher of wisdom. Now, the philosopher is literally a lover of wisdom. Philos, lover or friend of wisdom, Sophia. Philosophia or the philosopher is a lover of wisdom, a friend of wisdom. And what the philosophers saw themselves as being were, were teachers of wisdom whose job it was was to teach humanity how to live the most happy life. That The, the goal was eudaimonia, the Greek word for happiness or, or uh, fulfillment. Um, it, was the, it was the complete life. And the idea then was to sort of put before people a worldview. This is what you're created to be. As humans, this is what you're meant to be. This is your ideal um, happy life. And so by understanding that and then by living in that, your life is going to be the most complete. It's going to be the most fulfilled. Now, there were different schools of philosophy and all of these sort of stem back to Socrates. That was really Socrates' great project was to just to answer the question of why are we here? What, what, are, what are we doing here? What is our purpose here? How, how do we live the most happy life? Really just answering those existential questions. That's what the philosophers were seeking to do. And so you had different schools and different 
um, worldviews and different philosophies that they would teach. Um, but all of it was just geared towards, well, primarily towards free people and particularly towards um, free men. Um, free and certainly wealthy elite men were the, really the only ones that could pursue philosophy because it required your whole life. It required a lot of wealth in order to get that education in the first place. And it was only the free elite men who were ever going to enter into politics or in any sort of leadership positions where philosophy is going to be the most beneficial. I mean, a fisherman or a farmer doesn't need philosophy. They work in the fields. They work out on a boat all day. They don't need philosophy. They just need to catch fish or bring in a harvest. So philosophy for them is somewhat useless. It's kind of throwing you, 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 um, you, your pearls to pigs, right? It's it's not something that is of any benefit to those people. And then they can pick up bits and pieces, but generally it's of no consequence for them. Philosophy is only really for those who can put it into practice, which is into leading cities, to leading organizations, to maybe even to lead in the empire. You want somebody who is philosophically minded. You want somebody who thinks properly about what humanity is meant to be, not just so that they themselves can live according to that worldview according to that philosophy, but so that they can then lead others into that as well, so that they can be the most um, courageous, the most just, you know, all the cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control. These four cardinal virtues you want, you need to embody in order to be the best, most equipped leader for a civilization. And so then it's within that sort of philosophical context that we find the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were probably, Stoicism was probably the most popular philosophical school, certainly amongst the Romans of Paul's time. And one of its leading teachers, one of its leading advocates was a guy by the name of Seneca. Now, Seneca was actually a contemporary of Paul. Seneca was probably born about the same time as Paul, probably died about the same time as well. So they were kind of, um, you know, the same generation of of thinkers in in, the, in their day. Now we know Seneca. We actually know him through um, through the New Testament. We know him because of his brother Gallio. So when Paul was in Corinth uh, in Acts eighteen, it was before Gallio that Paul stood, who was the governor of the region. Well, Gallio was actually, in fact, the brother of Seneca. Now Seneca himself was in fact the tutor of Nero, the Emperor Nero. And so he was very connected with the imperial family and that was both good and bad for him. Ultimately, he got him killed. But nevertheless, he was a very famous, very influential, very prominent, and probably one of the most wealthy, probably the wealthiest man of his generation. I mean, just extraordinary amounts of wealth that this guy had. But what we know from what we know him for is for his stoic teaching. What we have are a series of letters of his that he's, he wrote to his student Lucilius, teaching Lucilius the tenets of of stoicism and, and sort of guiding him, training him through um, what it means to be a stoic philosopher. And so what we find in him is naturally as a philosopher who, whose goal it is is to understand the entire world. I mean, that's the goal of philosophy. You need to know everything there is to know about everything. You are an encyclopedia of knowledge. That's what it means to be a philosopher. Naturally, within that, you're going to address slavery because it is such. A, it is the essential building block of our, of our civilization. And so we have to explore it. We have to at least have a, a, a philosophical way of dealing with it or of at least processing it within what do, what do we as philosophers do with slavery or, or more, more specifically, what do we do with 
slaves themselves? How, how do we, how should we treat slaves in a way that is the most virtuous? If the pursuit of the ideal life well, or the pursuit of the ideal life is in and of itself a pursuit of virtue. The most virtuous life is the most correct life. It's the best, it's the most right way to live. And so that's the virtuous life. Well, then what is a virtuous way then to deal with slaves? How, how do we process slavery within uh, a virtuous worldview? And that's what Seneca was effectively trying to do. But so much of what he does is actually in passing. It's And what we notice about Seneca is that whenever he addresses slavery, well, would, no surprise, he only ever addresses the master. He doesn't actually address the slaves themselves and certainly how um, a slave should act or anything like this. He only ever addresses the master. And so what he has to say about slavery, it's very interesting because it's probably the closest comparison we have to what Paul is trying to do when he's writing to the Ephesians. So some of the key um, principles or key ideas that Stoicism holds towards slavery. Primarily, if somebody is a slave, that's because that's what God willed for them. God created them to be slaves. It's they were born into it. They were, everyone in sort of the Stoic idea has is sort of created for a certain task. There's a certain um, ends to their life that is the most fulfilled and the most happy. And so it's within that this idea that if you are in slavery, well, that's because that's what was intended for you. And so to push against that is to push against, well, God or, or fate or whatever it is that destined you to be this in the first place. And so it's just part of your nature. You just need to you need to come to terms with it. Now, slavery itself was actually a matter of indifference. One of the core tenets of Stoicism is the idea of adiaphora. Now, this is this sort of idea of indifference, basically the way that a Stoic treats all stuff, everything that you can touch, taste, and experience in this life is an indifferent. There are uh, there, there's virtues and there's vices. So there's the court, the cardinal virtues, the you know courage, wisdom, justice, um, self control. But then there are also the vices. Okay, so gluttony, uh, foolishness, um, injustice, and these sorts of things. Everything else in between is an indifferent. And so whether you're rich or poor is actually an indifferent. Now, if you're rich, that's to be preferred to be than to be in poor, because if you're rich, it means you can study philosophy. If you're poor, you have to work all the time to try to eat. So there, every, but everything in between is an indifferent. It's only then a question really of what you do with it. Are you poor? Okay, that's an indifferent. That's that's neither here nor there. The question is, what do you do with it? Do you uh, are you um, oppressed by your poverty, or do you just simply embrace it as the reality and use it to develop character? At the on, on, at the same time, if you're rich, that's great. That can be to your benefit, but you can also become a slave to greed because you've got you've got too much money, and so you just you you constantly controlled by your gluttony. And so everything is an indifferent, high status, low status 
all of these things are actually of no consequence. The question is always, do you use your circumstances to develop virtue? That's the only thing that is of any consequence is the development of virtue. And so somebody who is poor has a harder job of it than somebody who's rich, but somebody who's poor can still become far more virtuous than somebody who is rich. A rich person can be a slave to their greed and to their gluttony, whereas a poor person can be liberated by their poverty. And in doing that, attain virtue, which is the only good ultimately that we're all trying to pursue here. And so in that sense, free or slave are both indifference. You can be a free person who is also at the same time uh, enslaved to whatever other desires or other people's wishes for your life that you might have, they might have, or you can be a slave who is physically bound, certainly, but in your mind, you're free and in your mind, you're virtuous because you don't see your slavery as actually of any consequence, but rather you live within virtue. You're, you're, you're courageous. You, you, you have these, these virtues as a part of your character. And so it's an indifferent. In the same way, slavery, and, and along those sort of lines, slavery, as far as the Stoics are concerned, slavery is a human state that, that everybody could suffer. At the end of the day, as Seneca says, we're all actually slaves of fortune. In fact, he says, he says exactly this. All people are fellow slaves if one reflects that fortune has equal rights over slaves and free men alike. So whatever your station in life is, is actually of no consequence because over all of us is luck. Literally fortune, luck. Fortune can be fickle or it can be generous. If fortune can destroy us, fortune can bless us. And it's... It's luck, like it literally is, you can't predict it. You don't know who's gonna benefit from it or who's gonna be condemned by it. It just does what it does. And so a rich person can be can have their house destroyed in, uh, in a storm and a poor person can carry on and whatever. Like luck is just what it is and it will affect everybody indiscriminately. And so from the stoic point of view, whether you're a slave or free is actually of no consequence when you consider that all of us are subject to this fickle thing that we call luck. But more than that, all of humanity actually, again, as far as the Stoics are concerned, all humanity is basically in some form of slavery, which is what philosophy is there to set you free from. The problem with humans is that we're slaves to our own desires. We're slaves to greed and to lust and to envy and to pride and to all of these things. We're, we're enslaved to those things. They control us. And so in a sense, we're not free because we're controlled by these external desires or even these internal impulses that we have, they control us. We don't have control over ourselves. And so if the state of a slave is that they're controlled by an external force, then how are we any different if we're controlled by our own internal desires? We're not. And so in that way, we're all in slavery in, in, in one form or another. And he says it here. He says, it is a mistake for anyone to believe that the condition of slavery penetrates into the whole being of a man. The better part of him is exempt. Only the body is at the mercy and disposition of a master, but the mind is its own master and is so free and unshackled that not even this, pr this prison of the body in which it is confined can restrain it from using its own powers, following mighty aims and escaping into the infinite to keep company with the stars. So actual slavery then is, is your body is being controlled. Your body is at the, at the mercy and subjected to somebody else. That is true. Your mind, on the other hand, can be free. In fact, your, the mind of a slave can be more free than that of the master. And so for the Stoics, again, this is the Stoics talking here. For the Stoics, it's all just a, situa it's all just a, 
a matter of the mind. It's a matter of your outlook. It's a matter of how you perceive your circumstances and ultimately how you control your responses, how you control your reactions to your circumstances. That's a, that's the only consequence. That's the only thing of any importance because a virtuous person is somebody who sees the circumstances and uses it as an opportunity to develop good character. That's the only goal that we that we all share here. And so at the core then, what a Stoic will recognize is that whether you're slave or free, at the end of the day, at core, you're still a human. He says again, his slave, talking to his student Lucilius, his slave sprang from the same stock, is smiled upon by the same skies, and on equal terms with yourself, he breathes, lives, and dies. It is just possible for you to see in him a freeborn man, as it is for him to see in you a slave. And so then for the Stoic, true slavery, the real slavery is internal. The real slavery is the slavery of the mind, and that's what you need to be liberated from. And so a, an actual slave can, in the same way as a free person, be liberated from the, that real slavery of the mind. But in the same way, an actual free person can be enslaved more than an actual enslaved person. And so you can imagine from that starting point then that there really is no desire amongst the Stoics to overthrow slavery. There's no... They, 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 like everybody else, it's part of the social fabric. It's part of the way of the entire world order. It's only then just a question of, of how you see yourself, how you might use whatever your circumstances are to develop virtue. So there's no intention, there's no desire for them to, to remove slavery. But what we do find in them is something of a challenge to the masters to treat their slaves better. If their slave is indeed a fellow human being, uh, then what we want our masters to do is at the very least to see them that way and treat them that way, but not necessarily for the benefit of the slave. None of this is to of any benefit or, or any intentional benefit to the slave. It's only ever for the benefit of the master who is the one who's actually pursuing philosophy. So the question in all of this as a teacher is to train the, the person in, in philosophy. The only one who's learning the philosophy here is the wealthy free master. And so as a part of your training, as a part of your way of doing things, of being virtuous, you need to consider the way in which you treat your slaves. There is a more virtuous way to treat them. But again, it's not for the benefit of the slave. It's only ever for the benefit of yourself. And so even Seneca acknowledges, he says about the cruelty that they that is generally um, enacted on the slaves. He says that we Romans are excessively haughty, cruel, and insulting towards slaves. And so they even acknowledged that slavery, that, that they, they are cruel towards them. But it's not, the, the, the immorality in that is not because you're treating another person terribly and you're enslaving them in the first place. The, the problem with their being cruel to the slave is that it's a poor reflection on their own character. Only a person of poor character treats another person in that way. And so for you to be virtuous, you need to treat your slaves better, but only for your own good. The, you know, the slaves certainly have the upside of not being beaten and flogged on a regular basis, but that's a secondary consequence. That's a secondary outcome for uh, of the situation. What we're only really concerned about is the well-being of the master. And so he says to them, for, for this reason, treat your inferiors as you would be treated by your betters. And as often as you reflect uh, how much power you have over a slave, remember that your master has just as much power over you. So it's something of a, 
what we're going to see in Paul later on. Don't forget that you've, there's actually a God who is over you who can also treat you. You're an inferior to that God, and that God can treat you in the same way that you're treating your slave. So just keep all of that in perspective. But again, whatever benefits that a slave might receive from this more virtuous master are only secondary and they're not the intention. Seneca is not concerned about the lot of the slave. He's only ever concerned about the lot of the master because he wants the master to become virtuous. And so again, the secondary consequence of that is that a slave might not be tortured as much as they formerly were. But that's that's the only concern. Again, it's it's only ever for the the health or the the virtue of the master. All right. So with that in mind, let's let's have a look then at Paul. What does Paul have to do? What, what does Paul say about this? How does he deal with um, these same situations? And so I'm going to, there's a few points that I'm just quickly repeat that we've talked about in, in previous episodes. The thing we always have to keep in mind with Paul is that he's not trying to change society. As far as Paul's concerned, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. There, that, that's Jesus is, is on his way back. And so we're not here to overturn the whole world order. Um, we're not trying to bring about social justice reform and so that everybody can live in equality. This world is going to be do, is going to be absorbed in maybe a matter of days. And so when that happens, we're all going to be taken into eternity. We're all going to be um, in that sort of eternal paradise with Jesus. He's going to restore everything as it should be. That's what we need to hold out for. And so it's not our priority to change things in the here and now in a world that is ultimately going to be done away with. And so Paul has no immediate concern to change the world itself. It's just to get the world saved, get, to get everybody, as many people into that eternity as is, as is humanly possible. The other thing to remember as well is that Paul simply cannot persuade slaves. He cannot just tell slaves to, to go and liberate themselves. Again, that's illegal. That's going to get the slave crucified, and it's certainly going to get Paul in a lot of trouble. And more than that, probably the whole Christian community, this very, very, very small group of maybe a few thousand people in total across the Roman Empire, they're, they're babies at this stage. You don't want to eliminate them in the cradle. You, they've got to have a chance to flourish. And so the last thing we want to be doing is overturning a system that is never going to be overturned and for no ends apart from our own destruction. So we need to be careful legally about how much we, we can deal with this. And along similar lines, Paul needs to be conscious about how much he tries to demand from the head of a household. Paul always deals with the head of a household because that's the only person who can implement change. But at the same time, he needs to be careful about how much he tries to demand these men to make any changes because, well, the honor and the dignity of the man is on the line. He, if, if a man is being pushed around by another man, that's an affront. That's, that's a challenge to his honor. And so he needs to respond in kind to maintain his dominance. And we, we did a whole series on the, re, the responsibility that a man has to always be on top. And so if some you know, Jewish preacher is telling him what to do from afar, that doesn't look good for his honor. And so he needs, Paul needs to be careful about how much he really tries to push these men around to bring about change without pushing them so far that he gets the opposite response, which is maybe to, well, I'm going to be even more harsh with my family just to prove to you that you can't tell me what to do. And so then along with that too, let's not forget that when Paul writes these letters, he doesn't know all the families that are going to be reading them. The majority of the people that are going to be reading his letters are total strangers to him. And so you've got some random guy in some other part of the empire writing these instructions, telling them what to do in their own households. 
I don't think so. That's not the way it works. I mean, think about it in your own house. If some random letter turns up in your mailbox from somebody you've never met before, you might have heard their name, but you don't know who they are, and they're telling you how to run your household, what are you going to do with that? You know, if you've got any pride, you're going to go, who do you think you are to tell me that? That's just not something that's going to happen. But then another challenge that Paul has is that every part of the empire has its own laws around slavery. You know, we've talked about Roman laws and that that's true. That's because really they're the only laws that we have um, still extant that we can we can examine. But every community, every context is going to have their own set of laws. And so whatever is true of Roman laws may not be applicable in Ephesus or may not be applicable wherever Paul's writing to. They've probably got their own set of laws that we don't know about that Paul has to work within because slavery is true for all places and that that you find in the Roman Empire. But how slavery is dealt with and the, and the laws around it will vary depending on where you go. And so then there are some challenges that Paul has up front to the, how much he can address this issue. There are a lot of restrictions already. Before Paul even opens his mouth about the issue, there are a lot of restrictions that are already placed upon him. And so he just needs to be careful. He's, he's walking a very fine line here in the way that he deals with this, but he, he wants it to be dealt with. And that's something he has to sort of address here. And again, the only person that he can deal with is the master. It's, it's the head of the house. And so this is what he's trying to sort of do here in the way that he's going to deal with, with slavery in this, in this time. So we're going to look then primarily at Ephesians, we're going to look at what is known as the household code. Now, I've dealt with this, some of this in previous episodes. We've talked about the responsibilities of husbands and wives, and so you can certainly go and check those episodes out. But I want to just quickly just scan through the whole household code because it, it, it's what gives context to what Paul finally says to the slaves, which is slaves obey your masters. We need to, when we take that verse out and we say, look, Paul says that slaves have to obey their masters, and that's all we focus on. Well, naturally, we're going to draw the conclusion that Christians endorse slavery, that they're just reinforcing this, this evil thing. But like anything, we need to put it back into its context and see the whole flow of the passage to understand how it fits into to what Paul's argument actually is. And so this passage that um, we're looking at actually really begins back in Ephesians 5.15. So we'll just quickly read through these passages and we'll get to where we're, we're sort of going. So Ephesians 5.15 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So really quickly then, the context of this is that the whole church is together in the house and this letter has been read out to them. This isn't a private letter that gets sent around to every individual person because 90% of the people can't read. So that's pointless to give them this letter. So this has been read out as a part of a meal. So they've had their meal, they've done their church service, they've, they've had the sort of had the food, um, they've maybe prayed, or they're at that point of the meal where they're going to be praying and they're going to be prophesying and, and they're going to be doing some teaching. And so the teaching is, is this letter being read out. And so when Paul says here, uh, you know, sing psalms and songs to one another, he's literally saying that 
that's what you're going to be doing right now. As, at this part of the service, that's what you're going to be doing. Now, in a normal meal, this is a time when you would get, you would have the symposium, the drinking party, where everybody would be getting drunk and there'd be prostitutes and all of these things happening as a part of the after party. Paul says, okay, in this meal, don't get drunk on wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another in, in these more holy ways. So that's the immediate context of uh, of, of what he's about to say. And then the practical outworking of that as a family, remembering too that the church was built in a household in an existing family. So you, you start with a family and you Christianize it so that the structure of the family doesn't change. The, the, hus- the father and the husband and the, the, the mother and the wife and then the children and then the slaves, none of that changes. The family structure itself is the central unit of business, it's the central unit of the society. So we're not going to go in there and overturn that. We're not going to go in there and break all of that up because that's how the society works. And there's no need to break that up because it's working perfectly fine. What we need to do is Christianize it. We need to create within that family more of an egalitarian structure. And the only way that's going to happen is through the master. And so he starts these instructions, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. So that verse frames everything that is coming. Submit to one another. Who's the one another? It's everyone in the room. Now, who are the people in the room? Well, we're about to find out. And as it turns out, everybody's in the room. So first of all, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, remember, the submit's not there, right? That's from the previous verse. So wives submitting to their husbands, perfectly normal. We've dealt with that in previous episodes. Then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So notice that he's flipped the, uh, he's flipped the, the, the couple, right? The wife is put on top. The wife is given first priority over the husband. He's subsumed under her. So first of all, he deals with the wives, then the husbands, and he deals with the husbands as the guy who's actually the one who can bring about the change. So all the instructions to the wife are just carry on as you normally are. There's nothing you're doing. Don't don't change anything about what you're doing. Um, just continue on. Husbands, on the other hand, we need to talk. And he goes on to this whole list of instructions where the, the husband basically has to lay down all of his rights, all of his prerogatives as a husband, and submit himself entirely to his wife to the point where he dies for her. Now, again, we've dealt with this before, but that is some serious, serious changes that this guy has to make. That is hardcore change. He absolutely has to lay down his entire life and the wife doesn't change a thing. She just continues to submit. But now in the same way, the husband is also submitting to her. So it's mutual submission. Everybody's treating each other completely equally with total egalitarianism, which is what you would expect. Then he goes on and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that you may, it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Then he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So he says, children, obey. Different word to submit. Obey is what you expect a child to do. And remembering that the children are talking about here are like six years old. Now, here's the question that we would never ask. Why are the children in the room? Right, they're clearly there because Paul's addressing them. If he wasn't, if they weren't in the room, he wouldn't be addressing them. Why is he addressing the children? Well, they're in the room. Now, what are the children doing in the room? Well, obviously they're eating at the table with the parents. But the the thing we've got to remember is that the children don't ever eat at the table with their parents. Children, 
don't get to eat with their parents until they become adults. That's a privilege you have as an adult is to dine at the table with your father. Children are normally out the back with the slaves. Remember that slave room we talked about? That's where the children are. They're out the back with the other slaves because children aren't much better than a slave. They're, 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 they're about the same sort of status within the family. So the question we have to ask then is why are the children there in the first place? Well, because in the Christian household and at the Christian table, we do things differently. Everybody participates in the table, even the children. And then the instructions he gives them, obey your parents. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, what else are we going to do? If we don't obey dad, he can kill us legally. So, of course, we're going to obey him. But then he says, look, honor your father and mother, as, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and enjoy long life in the earth. Well, if we were already going to do that, but now Paul says, but it's a blessing that comes along with it. Obey your parents and you'll be blessed for doing that. It's like, well, we're going to do that anyway, but now there's a blessing in doing exactly the thing we're going to be doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a blessing now in that the thing you're already going to do. But then you notice, after the children, he addresses the fathers, right? So he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now, he doesn't address the parents, he addresses the fathers, because the father is the only one who can change the circumstances of the children. The children are his property. And so only he can change their circumstances. Now, notice he addresses the fathers after the children. He puts the, not only does he address the children, nobody else does that. He addresses the children first, then the fathers, and it's the only person who has to change anything is the fathers. The father has a legal right in Roman law to kill his children. Paul says, don't even exasperate them. Don't even push them too far. Right? You, not only can you not kill them anymore, you can't, even, you, you can't even treat them abruptly. In fact, he goes on and he says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, give them a Christian education. Now, the only way that you can give somebody a Christian education is by yourself first being a Christian. You can't teach what you don't know. So first of all, be Christians, fathers, and then train your children in how to do that. But then he goes on, and this is the controversial one, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. Okay, first of all, why is Paul addressing the slaves? Nobody addresses the slaves. In all of our previous Stoic teaching, you know, there was no talk to or about the slave. It was only ever addressed to the master. Here's, here's the crazy part about this passage. In all of the literature we have from all of the ancient world, never, we do not have a single example of anyone ever directly addressing a slave. And certainly if they're addressing a family, they would never in their wildest dreams ever address the slaves because why would they? The slaves aren't really fully human. They're out the back somewhere doing the work. You don't ever address the slaves. This is the only example we have in all ancient literature of slaves being directly addressed by anybody. So that in and of itself is just extraordinary. The fact that they're even being addressed at all is absolutely unprecedented in, in, in history. But here's the other important question. Why is he addressing them? What, how are they going to hear this? Well, because they're in the room. They're at the table. The slaves aren't serving the table. They're at the table. They're sitting there with their masters, with the other children, as a part of the family, as equals, brothers and sisters, with everybody else at the table. 
Why are the slaves even at the table in the first place? They should be in a room out the back somewhere with the children being ignored until they're needed because that's what a slave is. The slave is just nothing more than an appliance. But in the Christian household, no, in fact, the slaves are part of the family. Slaves are at the table with everybody else. And so then look at the instructions of that he gives to the slaves. Obey your masters. Well, what else am I going to do? He can literally put me on a cross. He can literally crucify me if I disobey, if I disobey him. What else am I going to do? Thank you, Captain Obvious. Any other good advice? Breathe oxygen? What are you talking about? But notice this is there. Obey them only, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. You're going to be doing it anyway because you've literally got no choice in the matter. But do it as though you're doing it for the Lord. You can't change your circumstances, but you can change the attitude with which you're doing it. Now, it's a poor analogy, but it's, it's the closest I can think of for a modern analogy. Imagine somebody's in prison serving a life sentence. They're, 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 they're never getting out. They're, they may be even on death row. There's absolutely nothing that is going to change their circumstances. They're locked away. That's it. Now, let's just now let's say that a, a minister goes in and preaches and prays with these people, this particular person, and they become a Christian. And now they're, they're a Christian, and now their life has been completely transformed. They're free. They've been set free from their sin, set free as, as Christians. Their circumstances haven't changed. They're still in prison. They're still serving a life sentence. They're still, still on death row. The only person who's going to change their circumstances is a judge. But let's assume that's never going to happen. Your circumstances are what they are. The difference is that now is you're a Christian. Now, at that point, could you imagine that same minister saying, actually, look, you are free. Okay, look, you're free in Christ, and so therefore you should be free in life. So next time you get the opportunity, escape. Okay, run away, knock the guard down, and then run away and be free. Live, live the freedom that you have now in Christ. Now, how do you think that's going to turn out? Number one, for the escaped convict, and number two, for the minister who encouraged them to escape in the first place. Both of them are going to be sharing a cell in very short order. So that's just not something you can ever possibly do. What can you do in those circumstances? Well, you're a Christian now. You are free in Christ. Maybe use your circumstances as an opportunity for worship. Maybe use your circumstances as an opportunity to honor God. Maybe you can't change anything else about it, but maybe through these circumstances, you can do something that develops virtue, that you can, you can serve Christ in some capacity as a slave. You can't change anything else. And we're going to see next week is when Paul says to them, if you get the opportunity to be free, absolutely do it. But if your circumstances can't change, just make the most of the circumstances, which is the sort of advice you'd give to anybody in any circumstance that simply can't change, this, that can't change their circumstances. But then he finishes it by saying, hey, don't forget that you're going to be rewarded for your service. You're going to be rewarded, good or bad, depending on the way that you perform in the same way that your master will because your master ultimately has a master and so in that sense your master is actually a slave like you are only he's a slave to his god and so therefore a slave to god not his god but to god and so therefore you're going to be rewarded one way or the other at the end of the day we're all slaves and so similar to what the stoics are saying but here's the difference between paul and somebody like seneca Look at what Paul goes on to say in the next passage. He says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism 
with him. Now, I hope you were paying attention to what Paul just did. He put the slave above the master. First of all, he didn't, it's not just that he addressed the slaves at all. Nobody had ever done that. Nobody would do that. He, he addressed the slaves because they were in the room. What do they do in the room in the first place? That's remarkable in itself. But then he put the, the, the master under the slave. And look at what he says to the master. Treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way you expect your slave to treat you. Treat your slaves in the same way you expect everybody else to treat you in your family. It begins with mutual submission. Submit to one another. Now, to what practical extent could a master legitimately serve a slave? Well, that's, that was, we, we don't know how that works out in reality. But you need to have a starting point as a master that you're as willing to serve your slave as you expect them to serve you. This is entirely backwards. This is quite literally turning the world upside down. And he says, don't even threaten them. You can legally crucify them. In fact, it's your prerogative to do that if they displease you. He says, don't even threaten them. Don't even speak harshly towards them. Treat them as you would, well, a family member. Treat them as you would a brother or a sister. And then reinforcing the point of he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So yes, masters, don't forget that you too are slaves. You too are in service to somebody else. So we've just completely reversed the whole world order. So notice what Paul's done throughout this entire passage. The wives, the children, the slaves cannot change their circumstances. They are subject to whatever the whims are of the head of the house, which is the man. The only person who can change their circumstances is him. And so in every single case, he gets dressed. He's the one who has to make the changes. So he addresses wives and children and slaves, and he addresses husbands, fathers, and slave masters, all the same person in all of their three different capacities, all getting, getting addressed and in every case having to make absolutely radical change, turning their worlds upside down into the whole way they perceive the other people in the household to now actually see them as equals. In fact, to see them as people that they themselves have to serve. Well, if you play that out to its logical conclusion, there can only be one possible outcome, which is that that family is going to be completely revolutionized. And what that looks like for the slaves, well, we don't know because we don't know what the outcome of this letter was and for others as well. But you can only assume that it completely changes the way in which, at the very least, the slave is being treated up until the point where it would be very hard for somebody to live in this worldview to even have a slave anymore. To, to even be able to reconcile the fact that they can keep somebody in slavery who is at the same time their, their, their spiritual brother or sister. It's, it's, it's not possible. It's, it, it's an irreconcilable double standard. And so I come back to the original point. Does Paul endorse slavery? Well, at the very best, you could say that he tolerates it. You can, it it's not in, he's, he's certainly not endorsing it. There's, he's not pushing back against somebody who's saying, hey, we need to get rid of slavery. And Paul's saying, no, we need to keep it because it's a good thing. No, it's just the way the world is. He's not endorsing it at all. At the very best, tolerating it because there's, he's very limited in his ability to make any actual changes structurally at all. You, simply, you can't change the structure of slavery. It's not something you can tear down. The only place that you can actually make any real change is within the immediate household, in the actual relationship between a master and a slave. You, when you deal with a structure, it's, a, it's an entirely different thing. You can't just, you, you can try to tear down a structure, but then all you do is create an enemy in the sense that somebody's going to push back because we 
want the structure. It doesn't work that way. What you have to do is do it at a relational level. You have to do it within the family itself. And so that begins and ends always with the master. And that's exactly what Paul goes after in this passage. And so he's not endorsing it. At the very best, he's tolerating it. But ultimately, what he's aiming for is a transformation within the household that could at the very least see within that immediate household, maybe the change to the extent of, well, maybe we'll try it without slaves. Maybe we'll do it without slavery anymore. And let's just see how that goes, because it's just irreconcilable in this new worldview that we've embraced, which we call Christianity. Well, that's all we've really got time for today, but we're going to come back for one more episode next week. And I want to just unpack this, this new worldview. What, is, what does slavery really mean broadly within the Christian household within, and, so, and, and within the Christian context? How, how does Paul want to redefine what it means to be a slave and, and, and really ultimately how we perceive slavery at all? And well, you wouldn't, you might be, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that he's got plenty to say about that as well. And so join me for that next week, but otherwise have a great week and I'll see you next week.